On this week's episode of the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I share my interview with Drew Goldalian of Engine Cycles. Each week on the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I get on the phone and I talk to someone in the bicycle frame building community for like 30 minutes or longer. In this case, it's like a two-hour interview that I did with Drew Goldalian of Engine Cycles in Philadelphia. And so I get on the phone and I record the call and, uh, you know, I just interview and ask questions. We have a conversation about, you know, frame building and it's about perspectives. It's about ideas. It's about passion and craft and why we care what makes us uh, driven to make the best thing we can make? And so we get into all those sorts of questions with Drew uh, on this week's episode. You know, uh, if you don't know Drew's work very well, uh, he's in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He opened up a um, retail bike shop in the early mid-90s, like 93 or 94 or something. And uh, and so he, he built bikes, or he didn't build bikes yet. He, he was selling bikes for, I don't know, until about 2004, he took a UBI class and he started uh, to, to build a lot of bikes pretty quickly thereafter in steel for the first, I don't know, nearly 10 years or uh, however long it was. And then now, you know, he builds completely in titanium. And so we talk a lot about that history. And, uh, you know, if you don't know Drew's work, and I would imagine you do, but, uh, but you really should know his work, he makes, I think, pretty remarkable and standout titanium bikes because he goes to lengths that most frame builders have not gone to or just feasibly realistically cannot really go to uh you know he just does not accept the same kinds of compromises that most of us assume that you just have to uh and um you know he he's really gone above and beyond what a lot of frame builders are willing to do to make a bicycle that is you know free of the things that bother him about every other bicycle i think is sort of how he put it but like um he, he you know he already had a machine oriented process about 5 years ago with lots of milling machines and he could make a bicycle efficiently without a whole lot of compromise but he was buying all these you know CNC machine dropouts and stuff from from Mark at Paragon Machine Works and he wanted more control in the process and he wanted to be able to you know create things uh you know to his liking in his own shop and so he bought a CNC mill a couple years later he bought a CNC lathe for the same sort of reasons uh for round you know, parts that a lathe does better with. And then, uh, and then now he has a second CNC mill that I think he uses at this point more for production for some of the stuff that he makes and sells to the public actually. And so, um, when you look at Drew's bikes, you know, the, the dropouts or CNC machine in his shop from like, you know, when you go to make titanium parts, sometimes you can buy plate, but like, if you need to make something that's like a blocky part, you have to go, uh, you have to buy a big forged, chunk of titanium that might be like you know a foot a foot cube or something like a one foot cube uh, <laughs> this big huge chunk which is very expensive and then you have to like proceed to saw it up into blanks and so you have to creatively figure out how you're going to saw up all these different blanks and then mill them to like the starting size so that you have blanks anyway it's very complicated and um 
he makes all this stuff in his shop so that, you know, the finished bike has the dropouts that are to his design just the way that he wants them. Uh, he makes some aluminum chainring spider for road double crank sets. He makes uh, an aluminum seat collar with two pinch bolts that's like a 25 millimeters tall or something. And uh, and we talk about that. It solves very concrete issues for, for basically all bicycles uh, with, a, with a 35 millimeter seat tube. And... Um, we talk about, yeah, his history with frame building and, uh, you know, just what compels him to make the best bicycles that he can make. I've always really admired Drew's work. I admire his, like, uh, you know, accept no substitutes, you know, like we're, we're building the best thing we can build, no compromises um, mentality because you just, most people kind of, they, they, they accept that there's going to be some compromise a little sooner than Drew does. And so when you see his work, it's like, it's really pretty damn close to exactly what he wants to be making. <laughs> and that's really cool to see. Uh, Drew's also just been a really uh, friendly and, and helpful person to me over the years. And I appreciate what he does uh, in the in the frame building community and, you know, what he does with his bikes. And so I was just glad to have him on the show, finally get that recorded so that I can share that with all of you. This week, the sponsor for the show is my tube bender big surprise right and so um you can buy my tube bender and it has available you know i have in stock pretty much every die uh for for like fractional inch tubing um you know five eighths of an inch three quarter and seven eighths one inch all the way up to inch and five eighths so that's like 16 millimeters up to i forget what inch and five eighths is it's like 41.3 whatever it is uh but anyway it's a pretty wide range of tubes and it's all for round tubing but like if you wanted to bend the uh the tapered fork blades on a traditional fork like if you're richard Sachs or somebody right um how do you how do you hold those tubes and bend them uh you can't do that with the tube bend dies that i make and so you know as someone who has a tool and wants that tool to be as versatile and useful to my customers as possible i've been planning for a while to release a uh an additional bend setup that you can buy that allows you to do those bends on the tapered fork blade tubes. And uh, that's finally coming. I'm gonna uh, finish the, the prototype and, and you know make a batch of those. They should be available within about a month from now. And so you can expect to see those uh, unless something goes terribly wrong, you'll see those soon. So I wanted to announce that. Also, um, since I'm running a bunch of bending dies and stuff, I'm gonna, uh, whereas right now, 5 eighths of an inch is my smallest normal size, I'm actually gonna bring it down a notch to uh, half of an inch because I, I think that's gonna be a less popular option and not many people have asked me for it, but a couple people have. Uh, you know, so at my own expense, I'm, I'm making a number of these that will sit on the shelf and then if people wanna buy them, they can buy them from me. So it's, you know, it's kind of expensive up front, but I'm interested in making a tool that is useful to people and solves their, their problems, right? And so if you have my tube bender and you have the 5 8 inch tubing dies, you know, so that's like 16 millimeters, um, you can you can probably put a half inch tube, which is like 13 millimeters. You can put that tube in there and uh, you can probably bend it to satisfaction if it's not a super duper thin wall tube, in spite of not having a super tight fit on the dies, you might get away with that. The tube might not be quite as round, uh, but you wouldn't necessarily get wrinkling if it's not 
you know, if it's not a super thin wall tube, you might get away with that. But where that's useful to have the tight fit on the die is for thinner wall tubes and more difficult materials. And then also, uh, if you wanted to do a matched pair of like S-bend seat stays, and you want to very precisely control the point of tangency of the bend so that you can make a matched pair, and you know, you can design it in like BikeCAD or CAD software, so you know the degrees of bend and everything, and you want it to, you know, come out the first time just the way you designed it. You can do that with my tube bender pretty easily, but if, if the tubing doesn't fit the dies perfectly, it makes it a little bit harder to like control everything just so. And uh, when you have that nice tight fit, it gives you, it, it's really, it's pretty easy actually um, to, to go from the drawing, the, like the print, the design that you have to making one good set of tubes without scrapping anything. And so uh, in service of that, I'm making these, these dies that will be available soon. Anyhow, uh, let's get into the interview. Where, uh, where I'm cutting into the interview, I just asked Drew to explain, to talk about sort of the difference between frame building and sort of like, you know, bike building, making whole bikes holistically, the project of building an actual bike and not just, you know, welding up a frame and shipping it. Yeah, I mean, a, a frame doesn't doesn't feel like the finished product to me. Uh, you, you can't ride a frame, can't use a frame. So, uh, being a, a bicycle manufacturer is makes more sense to me than being a frame builder, because to, to me the frame builder is just kind of part of the equation. Also, helps that I'm not overly prolific. So, you know, if you're not going to be making 200 frames, even, even a hundred frames a year, which I think is what it would take to make enough income to kind of, kind of like make it sustainable. So mm -hmm. it, it has to be a whole bike. And, and on top of that though, even if I was capable of doing 200 bikes, I'd want them to be complete. Cause again, I want to see the, the product to the finished point. At, at this point, there's, there's less and less of the, sort of confusion of, oh, this is compatible, that's compatible. There was, there was a huge period there where just bikes in general had a lot of different versions and a lot of different non-compatible components out there. It's, it's, in my opinion, it's kind of settled down a little bit. You know, it's cranks all have one chain ring and on a mountain bike and they have two chain rings on a road bike. Nobody uses a triple anymore. So the battle involved in making sure that you're using the right bottom bracket with the right crank with the, with the right, this and that, that was a big deal when, when I first started making bicycles and the headaches involved in like getting a phone call. Oh, this didn't fit. That didn't fit. I tried this. It didn't work. I wanted to avoid that. Mm -hmm. And so it was really important to me in the beginning that I saw every bike through and Eventually, it just made more sense to roll with that. You know, I, I yeah. realized like every time I made a frame and I shipped out a frame, I was like, man, I just put like the same amount of work in that I did two weeks ago and I made one third the money. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, because I mean, I, to me, assembling the bike, I could do with my eyes closed. And that that was not something that I would even remotely stress about because I put all the work in leading up to that moment. I knew everything was going to go on. Everything was going to work. And I just went with it. You know, it, it got to the point where I don't make a lot of bikes, and I wanted to make sure that everyone was, was the best it can be. And yeah. so I just said, all right, 
um, I'm not selling frames anymore. And I've probably made like two or three exceptions over the past five years. And almost always it's, it's an industry person that I'll make the exception for. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, whether I, I had a gentleman this year that, that lives in Minneapolis that he's a, he's a bike shop employee and I put kind of like two things in play. One was I wanted to meet people in person and two, it was complete bikes only. And he flew from, from Minneapolis to come to Philadelphia to meet me. And, and I wow. was like, all right, that's, that's a big deal. And he was young and, and this was like a big investment for him. So mm -hmm. I was like, all right, you know, I'm going to sell you just a frame. <laughs> yeah. And he, he seems really invested in like what he was going to do with the assembly. And I didn't want to take that from him. So yeah. that, that was, that was this year. And I guess uh, maybe like one or two others in, in the past five years, one was to uh, Paul price, you know, so I sent him a, a frame. I'm not going to, yeah. Obviously, even even if uh, he sent me the parts, I, I'm like, you know, this, this gentleman is obviously quite mechanically able. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> I'm going to send him a frame. I'm going to let him let him assemble it. Yeah, yeah. I've heard you say in an interview before to distinguish or maybe to clarify, like you know, I think you said I'm not a fabricator for hire. You know, because I think what you're clarifying is that you know, you have your own sort of set of ideas about how bikes ought to be put together and you've designed your process and your brand and your shop around delivering the things that make sense to you. And so, you know, you get that a lot when you're building custom bike frames that somebody might ask you if you could do something a certain way. And um, I don't know if you care to talk about that at all. Like, you know, it's always a consideration because the customer has a reason for why they want what they want. And so you want to entertain that or humor that to the extent that it makes sense to. But at the end of the day, it's an engine cycle. It's not a whatever, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you aren't going to pick up the phone and call Specialized and say, oh, I have this brilliant idea. You know, will you make it for me? And you, you're not even going to get Moots or, or Seven or you know, we'll throw a mosaic in the mix. They're, they're not going to do it. They, this is their bike. They have a menu of options. And, you know, if you like it, you like it. If you don't, you don't. The, the main difference is that I, I'm a single person. So you're going to have a more intimate situation. I'm going to tailor the bike to you with everything that works within the parameters of the bikes that I make. Yeah, and that's the part. Like, I'm not for hire for an idea. Like, oh, I have, I want to bring back the Nishiki Alien elevated chainstay. It's just like, oh, yeah, I don't want to make that. <laughs> and it, it, it is a certain bike. I have a mountain bike that I think is super dialed. I have a gravel bike now that's super dialed. Road bikes are pretty much easy to make. So that that is what it is. I can make a touring bike just because I've made enough of them, and I have like in my opinion, an intimate enough relationship with, with how bicycles work that I would feel comfortable always making a touring bike. Same thing with tandems, even though I haven't made a lot of them. But I'm not going to make track bikes. I'm not going to make a polo bike. I'm not going to make uh, a, any bike that is outside of my comfort zone, mm -hmm. not because I can't do it, but because I don't see the point in paying a premium for something that I'm not offering premium knowledge too. Yeah. Well, I mean, it makes sense to have specialties. It makes sense that like, uh, 
you know, you, you want to uh, establish a reputation and you have established a reputation as like having, yeah, like particular strengths, your hardtails, your road bikes, your all road bikes. And uh, because you, you've put a lot of, and you put a lot of specific engineering into those too. I mean, we'll talk more about that, but like, you know, you have chainstay yokes and you have uh, dropouts and things that you've had, you know, engineered and designed specifically for the way that you build bikes and for the way that those bikes are going to be used. And yeah, like, you know, why would you pay for that specialist premium? And, uh, you know, like, why would, why would you go to someone who specializes in that to then have them build you like a folding recumbent or something, right? Like, even if you were willing to entertain that, that's just not what you do. And I think it's, you know, it's good to have specialties then because, uh, specialization, because then, you know, your customers who, who actually are really, you know, looking for the, the best titanium hardtail they can get, you know, with a real person that they can have a conversation with, uh, you know, like, you know, Drew, bam, <laughs> you know, like you've, you've yeah. And, and, and the other thing is like, I, I don't get the point in, I, I somewhat you have to, and this is why I wanted to meet people in person. You have to figure out like, does this person just want to be part of a club or do they actually want this bicycle? And they sort of like buy into the fact that this bike is going to be awesome. And this is why you want it. And, mm-hmm. you know, like that, the mountain bike that I make is, it's dialed. I mean, I have had enough people ride it and, and I have ridden it enough and I have ridden enough bikes that like, okay, this bike does everything that almost everybody wants it to do. And it does it really, really well. And it's redonkulously solid. It's stiff the way you want a bike to be stiff. It's, it's pretty awesome and that that's what you want the person to show up wanting you don't want mm-hmm. them to show up and and want them to say oh well, yeah well that's pretty cool but would you do this mm-hmm. like no no i don't want to do that uh, if i did want to do it i would do it mm-hmm. and if, if it's not something that you've seen me do then you can kind of assume that that there's a reason yeah yeah, and I think that makes sense. You know, I think it's totally fair to specialize in the things that you want to, you know, be known for and that you do best. You know, totally makes sense to me. I wanted to ask you what draws you to titanium as a material. You know, you started with steel fabrication, like a lot of frame builders. And you moved into titanium, and then you dropped steel. Except, I think you do some steel forks. Um, and I've heard you talk about, you know, you just you really like it as a material for a number of reasons. Like, what draws you to tie? Oh, I drank that Kool-Aid long ago. So, you know, you can go back. I, I opened my bike shop 24 years ago, be 25 in September. And I was, I was like one of the first Moots dealers on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was right when they had made a uh, conscious effort to bring their product east of the Mississippi, essentially. And so we, you know, we brought the product in and I rode one and I was like, oh, this is awesome. And... Then I rode another one, and it was equally as awesome. <laughs> and, you know, I'm not going to even remotely try and disguise why I started with steel. It, it was easier. Yeah. You know, it, it, was, it was something that was attainable as opposed to saying, all right, well, I 100% feel like titanium is the ultimate material, and that's where I'm going to go right away. I had much more realistic understanding of of what it was that you know that i the path i was going down and i was like all right i'm going to start out with this material that's cheaper 
easier to use and, mm-hmm. you know, get, get comfortable with what's going on here. And the moment I'm comfortable with what's going on, I'm switching to titanium. Yeah. And it, it was what, you know, and I had a few things that I needed to get out of my system, like making a lugged stainless steel mountain bike that <laughs> yeah. put me on the map and I hated yeah. it. It's beautiful. So I, had to, I had to erase that whole situation, which took forever. And that, you know, once I switched to titanium, I got a lot of hate mail and this and that. And I was okay with that because the end goal was always to, to make titanium bikes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now, uh, and, and you make so many pieces of the bikes too. One of the things that I really admire about your work, uh, is like I think a lot of a lot of frame builders sort of like see the way that frame building is done and they think about like this is what is practical for me or not you know like these are the conventions or not and I feel like you push a lot further than a lot especially individuals like you know uh, Firefly and some other companies will have dropouts designed and they'll get a batch machined or something but like as an individual not many frame builders will go to the links that you've gone or I don't know if anyone has to, to make all of these custom pieces to your spec so that they will fit the, the purpose of the finished whole bicycle. And, uh, I think that's really admirable. Like the thought that you put into it and it comes from doing it too, you know, like you, you've used different things and tried different things for decades and you know what you like. And so, you know, you're, you're striving to make the best bike you can. Um, and you did that with steel some, I guess, uh, you were, you were buying more like dropouts and stuff from market Paragon. And then, uh, I forget exactly the timeline when you got your CNC mill so you could make your own stuff. Uh, yeah, what was the history? Yeah. Like, how long How long ago did you realize that you wanted to get your own CNC machines? Oh, I mean, I could tell you the, the night we were all out. Uh, we were pretty much drunk, but it was at Denver Nabs. I, I had just received my first batch of uh, new dropouts. So it was like the mountain bike dropout was the first dropout that I had made. And so the bikes that I had at the show had the new dropouts and, but I didn't make them. Mm-hmm. And we were, we were out at, the, we went to the moots, uh, cause it was in Denver. So like they had a little shindig at a local bar. So it was like Alec White and Butch Broussard who uh, of moots at the time, Mark and, few others I'm, I'm trying to remember who I mean, well Curtis Inglis was there and I want to say Bruce Gordon was there and Butch was the one who just leaned heavy he's just like you need to just suck it up push the green button it'll make your dropouts and I'm just like I definitely know it's not that easy but <laughs> you know it, it he he planted the seed where I was just like he was like I didn't know even an iota of what I was doing and I got through it. He's like, you can do it. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't be nervous. You can do it. And I was just like, all right, I'm going to see if I can, if I can figure this out. And I was kind of on the hunt for a CNC machine. And then the Philadelphia expo rolled around and, you know, I'm in my dining room again and I have Mark in my dining room and, and Alec white again. And, this time Paul Price was there and these guys are all just like, just do it, just do it. And I think two weeks later I found a machine. That's awesome. And it was like, it was the, 
Thanksgiving weekend, actually. So I, like, found the machine on a Wednesday. So obviously Thanksgiving's the next day. And I'm like, oh, man, like, what am I going to do? Like, I, this is definitely the one that I wanted to get, mostly because it had, like, a, in my eyes, like, an appeal to it because it wasn't as daunting as, like, a giant VMC that when it came to me that I had no idea how to use it, I, I couldn't use it because it was so big and daunting. Mm-hmm. So, like, finding the mill that, that was more, like, user-friendly mm-hmm. and, and, you know, a tool room mill I, in hindsight, I wish I didn't buy it, but that's okay. And, <laughs> you know, this was a Wednesday, and then Friday, I'm talking to the guy, and he's like, oh, I got this other company that also is going to buy it, so you got to buy it by Monday. Which is probably not true, but, you know, <laughs> this is w- this is what people do that are selling stuff. Yep. And that, mo- that Monday, I just went to the bank and wired the money. I was just like, cl- it's kind of like, you know, close your eyes and say, all right, here it goes. And that was it. Wired the money over sent Mark a message. I'm like, I did it. Here's hoping. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that was it. I mean, I, I, I brought that thing in, like, I think it was like December 5th or something when it finally got, got landed on, on the shop floor. And my goal was to have bikes at the next expo where I at least like made something on it. Mm-hmm. And I want to say, June of that same year or June of the next year, because obviously it was December. I had a batch of road bikes drop dropouts done. Cause I was out of road bike dropouts mm-hmm. and a few other things. So like that, I was pretty impressed with myself that yeah. seven months later I had a finished product that was coming off the machine. And, yeah, and, and that's titanium too, where when I got a CNC mill, I got it up to speed pretty quickly. I was surprised, but like one of the big, big differences is that you can just go to your materials supplier and get aluminum extrusion bar, like one by two inch or whatever, and you just chop it to length on your chop saw and you have blanks. And you have like a more expensive, harder to source, more difficult to cut material. And even just to make the blanks is like a, it's a big job. You know, you need to, you need to, you have that that whole setup on your on your bandsaw so that you can make blanks in the first place not to mention the feeds and speeds and the the, the requirements of the cutting tools and the flood cooling it's a, it's a whole different ball game versus just cutting aluminum oh yeah i mean i i don't even think i made an aluminum part on on my machine well i made the the derailleur hangers so that came after i made the dropouts before i made the derailleur hangers mostly because i had hangers still from mark Mm-hmm. because I had to buy so many more of them in comparison to the dropouts themselves. And I don't think I made the, the hangers themselves until like nine months later, maybe even a year later. Yeah. And that was like the first aluminum part that I went after. Mm-hmm. And when I, I, when I made that, I was just like, wow, so this, is, this is amazing. <laughs> it's so easy. <laughs> you know, it was, yeah, it was all titanium or, or steel for the fixtures. And, I, without a doubt, couldn't have done any of it without Mark. So Mark Norstead is the greatest human being on planet Earth. <laughs> and this industry wouldn't even remotely be where it is without him. Yeah. Hopefully everybody realizes that. Yeah, it's and, crazy. It's crazy how valuable of a service he provides for everybody. And so many people don't realize. And sometimes you'll hear someone complain about the price of CNC machine dropouts from Paragon. And it's like, wow, this person has no idea. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I, and I don't even give him any business, and he's and he's one of my closest friends, and you know, he, we talk like almost daily, but that you know, not not from a business standpoint, obviously, but he has never, ever, ever not gotten me out of a situation, mm-hmm. and. You know, I, I would like to think that I offer him something in return just because anytime he has more of like a bicycle related question and mm-hmm. not as much how to make said thing question, I'm always going to be there for him. And hopefully I offer a point of view that, that might be different, you know, coming yeah. to me and asking me a question about one of his products. I think he knows that he's going to get a solid answer mm-hmm. because I have no vested interest in the situation yeah you know i i i hope he sells thousands of them i hope that the price is like i don't care what the price is so like you know i'm, I'm gonna tell him to do something that might make the product too expensive but yeah. he'll say that be like well that would be cool and all but i can't make them cheap enough so yeah you know i gotta fi- i gotta figure out a different way but i get what you're saying yeah and yeah and you definitely did give him a lot of business for for a straight decade or more there yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I I was incredibly loyal. I never ever put a non. The only thing I think I made one bike with the stainless steel salsa dropouts, <laughs> and that was it. Like every single bicycle ever made had a Paragon bottom bracket, had Paragon dropouts. Uh, the only cable stop that I didn't use in steel was I preferred those stamped Pacenti. Yeah. Zip tie guide because those. they're ridiculously simple. Yeah. But, you know, once we went to the Weldons, I, I switched to the Paragon ones. But, yeah, I mean, Mark is an incredible maker. And yeah. he he does stuff ridiculously fast, which he hands over right to the end user. You know, those prices mm-hmm. are so cheap. Yeah, because they're, they're so he's really good at making the stuff that he makes. Yeah, I remember when I got my CNC machine, I bought it not to make money with or to start a business with. I bought it because I was frustrated. I had a CNC machine operator day job and they just wouldn't throw me a bone. I, I just wanted to learn and like they just really had no interest in giving me any opportunity because maybe I'd crash their spindle or something, right? So I got frustrated at that, trying that for a while. And so I took a class and I bought a machine and then I started selling some tools because I had some ideas for things. And, um, and then I had to come up with more ideas after that. But anyway, um, uh, what was I going to say about that? I, 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 never, uh, I never intended to do anything with the, with the machine. Oh, and so, so anyway, I was looking at like dropouts. I was like, you know, frame builders spend so much time on flat mount. And so I started scheming on like a modular dropout system. Looked a lot different than what yours is for flat mount with the modular. But, you know, it's, it's a frame component that you weld in that bolts to an aluminum part. So similar in idea. And I had something that I was working on, but I was just like, there is no way that I could make this at a price point that seems reasonable to people where I think it's worth me making them. And I would look at the Paragon prices for all those dropouts and stuff, and I'm just like, how does he do it? You know, I mean, he's just got, he's got a system, and he's been doing it so long, he knows how to do it. He's got fast machines, but uh, there's really very good prices, uh, considering that he's a real, real business with real overhead, and he pays his employees, and, you know, he's, it's legit. Yeah, it, it, more more than fast machines, he's got ridiculously rigid machines. Mm-hmm. So 
you know, you can have, you can have a, a machine with a 25,000 RPM spindle, but if it has linear ways and you can't lean into the material, you know, you're still at a loss. Mm-hmm. But his machine, those Kitamoras, the Japanese, you know, 20,000 pound boxway machine and the 20,000 RPM spindle. Yeah. The the rate in which he removes material is bonkers. I mean, that the spindle meter is pegged the entire time. Yeah. And, you know, that that's how he's making money. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's, the whole time. That thing is just pegged. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I got to tour Paragon um, in the spring when I went to the uh, Sacramento NABS show. Mark gave me a tour. And, uh, yeah, it's a a beautiful facility. And uh, it's really cool to see the machines by, you know, I've been buying his stuff since at least, you know, 2012 or something in there. And, uh, you know, to see the space where all that stuff gets made is really cool. Oh, it's awesome. And all with edge finders and, (laughs) you know, the analog calipers and, you know, the occasional digital caliper that Mm -hmm. that's what's so cool. Everything you can go ahead, grab, you know, a pair of dropouts from five years ago, grab bottom bracket from five years ago. Grab one from two years ago, grab one from this year, they're all going to be the same width. They're all yeah. going to be the same thickness. They're all going to be exactly the same. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, he's, he's, he's doing a great service. Yeah. Um, so, you know, next time you, can, next time you interview Mark. And <laughs> yeah. No, I'm going to, he's going to be on the show sooner or later. Uh, there's so many people I want to get to. I wanted to get to you for a long time. I, when I first was starting the podcast, I was going to start it last November, and you were one of the first people I emailed, and it took me this long to finally get you on the show. So <laughs> I'll get Mark on. Stick. I'll get I'll get to it at some point. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about the um, – I don't know if it has a name other than I've been calling it the seat post double binder. Uh, but, you know, you're producing these – I mean, you bought a machine, at least it seemed in part, to help with production for these. And what it is is like, a, you know, a seat post binder, an aluminum seat post binder that slides over your seat – c-tube and it's got two bolts so you have more surface area right to hold your dropper seat post without binding the internals is that the idea yeah i mean it has it has almost an inch of bearing surface so that was definitely part of it i i didn't quite understand the point of seeing so many bicycles with like a one inch long slot and but then a 12 millimeter tall seat collar yeah you know, you're just like, what, what are you, what are you, you, you are tightening down 12 millimeters. Let's be honest here. Like, I, I don't see the point in this long slot if you're not going to take advantage of all of that bearing surface. So mm-hmm. then carbon seat posts, people are cracking them, they're sinking, they're coming up with, with carbon paste, which is like clearly a Band-Aid mm-hmm. for something that's not working. And then the dropper seat post, you have people that you know, they're either slipping down or they're binding their dropper seat post. And I, I had like a new, we'll just say a lot of seat collars break. I'm not going to say who. Mm-hmm. They're not made of the right material, in my opinion. And they would crack because the material is too brittle. And it was like a lot of them, not some of them, a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, all right. I, I want to make one that works better. So I knew right away the main thing I wanted to do was take up the, the bulk of the slot. So it's like if we have an inch of slotted material, I want to clamp on an inch of slotted material so mm-hmm. that you have like a nice firm grip on this thing. 
I wanted to work like right around five, six Newton meters. And in my mind, I was just like, I don't care how much it weighs. I'm, I'm done with light stuff that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So my absolutely atrocious computer abilities got to work. And I got probably like three quarters of the way through. And I was like, all right, I'm going to try and make this thing and, and see what it looks like in real life. And maybe a good thing, maybe a bad thing. I took a picture of it because it was a total turd. And Peter Verdone sends me an email. He's like, you're not going to actually make that, are you? And I was just like, <laughs> that's, dude, that's I'm, exactly I'm like what he was just saying, getting yeah. started. You know, I'm like, I'm just getting started. Uh-huh. It's not the finished product. And he was just like, I get what you're trying to go after, but you know, that, that is not it. And I'm just like, all right, all right. Like (laughs) I get it. And so he's like, send me the files that you have. I'm like, all right. So I sent him the files that I have and we did go back and forth like a whole bunch of times. And now at least I could, I could send like napkin sketches because I had plenty of stuff in my mind that I wanted to do, but I am terrible at three-dimensional computer yeah. work, so it probably took like two days of back and forth, and then he sent me one, and I made it, and I actually liked that one. That was that was version probably four, maybe five. I really liked it, but then we put it on a scale, and it was like, I think it was 32 grams, and then we put a salsa collar on the scale because that was that was clearly the the one that didn't suck mm-hmm. and it weighed 30 grams and I, and he was like we need to make it lighter than the salsa collar and i'm like <laughs> why? like why who cares and he's like oh it has to be lighter than the salsa collar that's it, it has to be <laughs> so back to the drawing boards we go like trying to shed every microcosm of material that isn't necessary but doesn't make it flimsy mm-hmm. and that was kind of where the the sort of like stepped shoulders came from and the fluted area and, and a few other things and mm-hmm. we got it down to 29 grams with the bolts and it's consistent like after anodizing you know no matter what i've, I've weighed hundreds of them mm-hmm. and they all weigh 29 or 30 grams not a single one of them has been over 30 grams Wow, I, I probably wouldn't ship it to a customer if it weighed over thirty grams. But <laughs> well, that would suggest it, that that maybe the tolerance was off or something. You measure it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I again, every one of them are like hovering around twenty nine grams, and yeah. So that, that's kind of the history of it. I mean, I, I will always give Peter the credit for taking the project to the finish line. Mm-hmm. But you know, there's all these people out there that that like to always give Peter the credit and it's just like, I I get it. Like Peter helped me in debt. Like he definitely helped me make that product. Awesome. Mm -hmm. But the product was, was in the works. Like I was working on it. I had a vision. It Mm -hmm. had opposing bolts. It had the height. It had this, it had that. Like I didn't care about 31, eight C collars. I'm like, no, that's the past that I'm only making a 35 millimeter C clamp. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a few other things. I I absolutely wanted it to be titanium bolts. And do you make the bolts? I do make the bolts. Nice. Yep. Is that a? So you have a bar feeder for your lathe. Is that like a fully automated operation uh, producing the bolts? 
I I have a bar feeder. I do not have a bar feeder hooked up to my lathe. Okay. Uh, that is still sitting there. That that project might take a while. <laughs> so I use a bar puller. Yeah. Um, I can put a 30-inch piece of bar in my spindle. Yeah. So uh, 24 bolts comes out of 24, 26, I can't remember, comes out of a 30-inch bar. Yeah. And so I, I will load the, the single bar, press the, the green button, and, you know, dig through the, the chip conveyor, get my 25 bolts, load a new bar, press it again. So mm-hmm. it's actually six minutes of runtime per bolt. So Wow. Yeah. It, I mean, they're titanium. They're actually made of 6242, which is even harder than 64. Mm-hmm. So it's a brutal material. And it's, like, really hard to broach. So I have to change the broach every four bars. Wow. Because it, it will be chipped. And, yeah, I mean, the bolts are not cheap. They're a, a healthy, healthy chunk of why the C-collar costs what it costs. What's the retail price I think on a that? lot of people overlook that, that. And it's not that these bolts are not readily available. So, like, the bolts... Yeah are made with a specific profile to the part yeah. where the head is on an angle and that's getting rid of unnecessary weight. The, the bolt doesn't need a square head mm-hmm. and you know, that that's part of what's making it lighter. Mm-hmm. The only source that I have found for a bolt that matches this profile is, is coming from overseas and even coming from overseas, they're $7 a bolt. So yeah. Um, what's the retail price on these? $75 and then oh, 85 for the colored version. Yeah. I, I mean, considering what goes into those and that, you know, you're not a factory, I think that's a great deal. I'm, I'm, uh, building a YouTube or I'm building, building a YouTube channel. I'm making a mountain, uh, Mount hardtail mountain bike, uh, every week on my YouTube channel. And, uh, from the beginning I designed it around definitely having one of those. So, uh, if I don't already, I think I'll need to buy one from, from you before I, uh, before I go to Philly. But anyway, Definitely going to get one of those because uh, it's it's clearly the best design for that sort of thing. Um, you know, is it absolutely necessary if you're pinching pennies? Maybe not, but like you know, I'm making a nice bike and I want to put the good parts on it, and I believe that this has a functional advantage and it's just really pretty and it's from someone that I admire, so I want to put it on my bike. Yeah, cool. Thank you. And, and I mean, I definitely was like, I I, I get it. There's there's twenty five dollar seat binders out there, but they're made like one fifth the time that it takes me to make these. So yeah. it's like they're, they're probably from, from a percentage standpoint yeah. actually making more money than I yeah. am oh, probably, yeah. making a $75 version of it. You know, yeah. it's, it's, that's one thing that I, I tend to try and emphasize. Like it's a four sided part. Uh, you know, it's, I'm, I'm not using like a half a million dollar five axis machine. I'm not using a lathe that has live tooling mm-hmm. that, that would be the answer. I mean, it, it would have to be a multi-axis machine because, like, most of the, the Swiss machines don't feed uh, inch and five-eighths bar, which is what would be necessary to make the part out of, out of round stock. Yeah. So that would be a pretty, pretty big machine mm-hmm. that would be necessary to, to crank these things out. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure I'm only, I don't know, who knows, a year or two away from them showing up on Alibaba for 
25 bucks or 20 bucks but yeah well know, it's not the un- same until thing then <laughs> it's not the same thing anyway though i mean it's uh uh you know like a lot of i think what makes it special is the uh the attention to detail like you know the I don't know. For me, anyway, you know, the reason that I would buy it, like, it seems, like, smarter to have two bolts and more surface area, but also, like, for me, the appeal is really, like, the the story behind it and that it's really beautiful and that there's a lot of thought put into getting it just right and the, the tolerancing is just right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I did not uh, account for powder coating, so that, that's, like, it is 35 millimeters. The bore is 35 millimeters on the nose. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just, like... Either you just expand it a little bit to get it over to powder coating or sand off the powder coating, put some grease underneath it and put it that way. Because, you know, the reality is it's going to work correctly if it's the powder coating is is in the middle of the equation and it's making it not work right. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like sand it down to the bare metal. The bare metal is 35 millimeters, 34.9 this is 35 millimeters on the nose. It's going to slip right on. And, you know, with minimal effort of tightening the two bolts, all of a sudden your seat post is not moving. Yeah. And, and it's really noticeable. Like, if you have the seat collar on the frame and either of the two bolts, like if the head is touching the shoulder of the part, your, your seat tube, is, your seat post will not fit in. Yeah. And the, the second you back it off, it'll slip in. Yeah. And it's just because it has so much bearing surface. I mean, it really does actually work incredibly well. Yeah. And that's a factor of like the fit uh, is a big part of that. And so if you, if you just manufacture it with a loose tolerance so that it's like a general purpose, like, yeah, you could put it on one with powder coat or without, then it doesn't function the same. And so right. it's like a necessary, yeah. Um. I want to talk a little bit about your history with bikes and everything. You know, you had been running a retail bike shop for like at least 10 years when you started building bike frames. Uh, I think you, I think I've heard that you took a class at UBI. Uh, I'm just curious, like some of the backstory when you decided that you, or when you knew that you wanted to be making actually like fabricating the frame and uh, how you got started with that. Um, I mean, I, I would say that I, I wanted to make bicycles, from the moment I, I graduated college, but I had a, a realistic understanding of like what was about to happen. So I was 23 years old, 20, 22 years old, graduated college, and I drove from my final exam home to my job that was going to start the next day. Mm-hmm. So clearly my priority was like, okay you know, let's jump in. I'm not traveling. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. I'm like literally driving from my final exam to my job. Mm-hmm. And I think I was working there for like three months and I was just like, Oh, what have I done? This, <laughs> this is not what I want to do. Because you had this studied is... to be a chef or something, right? Yeah. I have a business degree and a culinary arts degree. And it was, it was, I was not, cut out for it when it came to the lifestyle. Um, you know, I, I, I wanted to ride my bike and I was working with a bunch of people that wanted to drink and do drugs until two in the morning and, you know, rinse and repeat over and over and over. And I was like, Oh man, this is, this is just not cool. I don't want to do this. <laughs> and 
I, I, the only other thing I wanted to do was, was ride my bike. And like, I can, I could dig up if I had any nostalgia, but they're all long in the trash, like notebooks and stuff from college where I would just daydream. And I, and I had like, you know, I would draw in my horrible drawing ability storefronts of like my, my bike shop that I was going to have. And it was all like a joke. I didn't think it would really be something that I would do. I just figured I was going to go cook. And then I was like, Oh wait, so there's that other thing that I said I would do. So let's do it. And at the same time, I was like, it would be kind of cool to, to make bikes, but then I did a little research into it and, and Gary Helfrich had just started the titanium course out at UBI mm-hmm. and I, I looked at the price of it and this is all, you know, way before the internet. So this is like, you know, you're, you're reading about it in the back of dirt rag and, and you're, you're snail mailing to Ashland, Oregon to get a packet back and you get your packet back and you're like reading through it and, and you're like, all right, well, this would essentially take like all my money to go out there, take this course, come back, and now I'm broke, and what do I? And then what do I do? So yeah. I'm like, well, that doesn't really work. So I had enough money to to just like buy a small inventory and and open a store. Now I should I should backtrack a little bit. My the property that I'm in is like a family property, and it was available. I I like sat down with my grandmother and I and like we worked out a deal, and from a, from a standpoint of like paying the rent i knew that i needed to create money kind of right away yeah and that was not going to be the case if i was going to go and like take this this course on like frame building and then like not i don't know anybody you know the internet doesn't exist how, how do you sell this product you know so opening a bike shop and trying to bring in a little bit of income with with like the end goal being maybe i can make enough money to slowly transition into making bicycles and it definitely got sidelined right away because you realize like, Oh, first I have to learn how to do this. <laughs> I'm 23 years old and I don't really know. I just got myself into, uh-huh. got into this industry where you don't make any money. And <laughs> that, that was, uh, that was the blind leading the blind. Cause I mean, I, I had no idea what I was doing. I I just was ambitious and stubborn and luckily mechanically inclined. So in the end it worked out, but you know, I can manage money. That's never been a problem. I can run a business. That's never been a problem. I'd like to think that I'm a good boss, but my track record might (laughs) say otherwise. (laughs) I've had a lot of employees over the years, but I think that's just the bicycle industry in general. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, then then a few years into well, like less than a year into it, I I met Steve Elms and started being an independent fabrication dealer, and you know that's when I met Jeff Buckholtz and all the other people, Mike Flanagan, Lloyd Graves at at Independent, and we we hit it off. I, I definitely had a good relationship with them. We sold a lot of Independents, and I felt like that that was really like fulfilling my desire to to kind of sell a premium product mm-hmm. and that went on and on and on and and then i i kind of got into a point where i started to request them to do things that were 
like, you know, for hire situations where I'm like, I would really like it if you did it this way instead of the way you do it. And I would really like it if you would change the top two blades to this, head two blades to this. And they didn't want to do it, so they charged me, like, ridiculous money, and I still paid it because <laughs> I didn't have an option because I really wanted to see what this was like. Uh-huh. And I was doing the same thing with Moots where I was paying ridiculous money to have them change minimal dimensions. And then eventually I was just like, okay, if I add up the money I've spent in the last five years, it's I bought myself, like, three milling machines and, and this and that. And so I I just said that's it i'm done um, uh, all these project bikes need to be made by me and that was that was it so yeah then i went to ubi that would have been steel course with 2004 or something yeah and took the steel course with jim kish and proceeded to send jim probably way too many emails for <laughs> for what i paid for but he answered them and yeah it, it was uh endless hours i mean luckily i didn't have a kid at the time and i have the coolest wife in the world because i think i worked like 120 hours every week for an an incredible amount of time i was just like so all in because what happened was i sold all my bikes i mean i had a parley i think i had three moots three independents you know I, i i had more i had a lot of bikes and I sold them all, every single one of them, and turned around. I bought a Bridgeport. I bought a closing lathe. I bought uh, a surface plate and a few other things. Like I found this ninety-seven-year-old guy that was retiring, and bought like as much stuff in one place as I could buy, all with the money from selling my bikes. Wow! So I had these this collection of like really nice bikes. And then I proceeded to make really shitty bikes that were going to replace them. <laughs> and that, that was a tough situation because I mean, I, I was a bona fide bike snob and now all of a sudden I'm like, Oh man, this bike is not as good looking as the bike that I just sold. But you know, that's okay because it actually rides better because I did this and that was what I wanted to try. Mm-hmm. And and then I did it again and tried something different. And then I had my forever indebted employee Ed at the time who he worked for me through the whole like learning curve. And he and I, I mean, I've, I made him so many bikes over the years and he gave me such incredible feedback. And it was like one after another, after another, never, never the same. Like, you know, why would you make a second bike? That was the same as the last one. Like you, you have to try something different. And that that was, I I think I made like fifty bikes in one year. Wow! And just for the two of us, and I think I made my wife a couple of bikes. It was just like, gotta make another one, gotta make another one, and it it was a lot of hours. It was long hours, but I I would say like towards the end of that, maybe like the fiftieth bike, right around then, I was just like, yo, this bike doesn't suck. This is like kind of okay. And that was when kind of the light bulb starts to go off when you, you tried something that worked so well that you're like, okay, hold on. Like this is pretty cool. Like I'm going to make another one of these and give it to Ed and see if he agrees with me in his size. Mm -hmm. And he's like, yeah, this is, this is definitely the best one yet. And 
I mean, this is during the heyday of like the two niner. So I was lucky in that the mainstream bicycle companies hadn't really caught on. And there was, there were a lot of customers out there that were looking for two niners. The single speed was definitely like in its heyday. So I was fortunate in that like finding customers right off the bat wasn't that hard because there wasn't a lot of product that was available mm-hmm. and what was available, there was a lot of it that wasn't that good. Yeah. And, and this, is, this is from a standpoint of like being a mountain bike, not necessarily the quality of the product, but just like how, how it functioned. Yeah. And that, that was kind of the, you know, this well, how I pigeonholed myself into the mountain bike market, you know, that, that was what was happening at the time. I got good at it, and, you know, it, it was hard to undo that. That was definitely something that I didn't anticipate. Like, hey, I, I want to make road bikes. Like, I, I'm good at making road bikes. I want to make road bikes. And I've always wanted to make bicycles that can be ridden anywhere, and, and luckily now that's what people want. So, mm-hmm. you know, the whole gravel road bike thing and sort of being known for making the mountain bike is I'm – not, I'm not against it. I'm fine with it, but – it wasn't something that I kind of set out to do. Yeah, yeah, you wanted to make more than just mountain bikes. I think I remember yeah, sure. when I was talking to you a year or so ago, at you know, when I was around at the Philly Bike Expo, uh, I think you were saying something about how, like, the first year or something after UBI, you just, you kind of, like, t- said to yourself, like, I'm just going to spend, I forget what you said, if it was, like, $7,000 or something, like, I'm just going to spend this amount of money on tubing if I have to. I'm just going to make as many, something like that. You you basically, like, you understood that there was just, like, there was going to be a lot of stuff that was going to end up probably being scrapped before too long because that was what it was going to take for you to get, like, the familiarity and the the, the sort of, like, uh, pool of experience to know what you were doing. I forget how you put it, but I, I feel like you said something oh, to yeah. that effect. I mean, of those 50 bikes, I, did, I mean, I, the, I didn't make a single penny. Yeah. You know, I even had them painted. So it was just like, I, and half the reason I was having them painted was because I wanted to see like how it looked when it was painted. And, and I had all these like paint scheme ideas that I wanted to try out and, you know, nothing rattle canned either. So yeah, it was just like a giant money pit, you know, it was, <laughs> it, but it was, if you're going to invest in something that you wanted to be a sustainable product, like that, that is what it takes. I mean, I, I just felt like that was what I needed to do. I needed to just keep making stuff. And it's ironic because, I mean, I was far more prolific then than I am now. But I also, like, picked up the phone or went on the Internet and ordered this, that, and the other thing and pieced it together. So that was much easier. Now it's a whole nother level because... I'm going to make the dropouts. I'm going to make the bottom bracket. I'm going to make the head tube. I'm going to make the yoke that represents the, the chain stays. I'm going to make the C collar. I'm, I'm, I'm literally going to make the entire bicycle. And mm-hmm. that is a whole nother level, but it's also a far superior product than what I was making in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, you know, you, uh, when I had Carl Strong on the show, he was talking about one of the, one of the issues for newer builders is that, you know, it's hard to make enough, uh, 
to, to have like a large, like if you're a hobby builder and you're building five bikes a year, it's hard to have that sort of like body of work to inform your judgment and your experience about like how to design bikes and how to make them, like how to do the fabrication and the design. And so like if you've never done a lot of building, you know, you just don't have a very, I think he said data pool. You don't have a very big data pool. And so like if you can afford to or if you can possibly front load a lot of that learning like you did by just like just diving into it, you know, that would serve you really well later on, even if you slowed the pace way down just to have gotten a lot of stuff. And, uh, you know, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, 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 I heard that interview and, and he said he finds it ridiculous why anyone would make their own bottom bracket when Paragon Machine Works <laughs> makes bottom bracket. And I, I took offense to that because a, I make my own bottom brackets, but they're actually different and they, totally have a purpose because mm-hmm. they're thicker and I have an external left thread reference mark, which I will never not think is the right thing to do. Like there's a bolt that's left threaded. It's got a groove on it. There's a pedal that's left threaded. It has a groove on it. Yep. Like I, I, I that little hidden groove in the face of the bottom racket shell, I only needed to do it once, but I did it. And, you know, you put that sucker in the bike backwards, and you're just like, ah, oh, can't believe I just did that. Yeah. And, you know, you're not going to do it if the groove is on the outside of the bottom racket shell. It's yeah. just not going to happen. And yeah, and no, I think that's a good Not design. to mention, when, you, when you're a mechanic and you're going to put something into this, Mm-hmm. So especially for me, because this was when we were doing T47, I wanted to be like, okay, maybe people don't know that T47 is in fact left threaded on the drive side. So yeah, yeah. this has to be, yeah, I'm putting a groove on the outside. And, but the big thing is that it's thicker. So I, I went to Mark right when we were doing the whole T47 thing, and I was just like, yo, I want one that's a little thicker. And I found this material that is, in fact, a sixteenth of an inch thicker, and there's said feet of it, which I, th- I think it was 200 feet. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, th- I think that it would make an awesome bottom bracket. And he's just like, well, what happens when the 200 feet is up? <laughs> yeah. And, and I was like, I don't know. I didn't think that far ahead. Like, I just think that it would make an awesome bottom bracket. And, and he's like, yeah, you should buy it then. Yeah. Now I didn't have a lathe at the time. I I only had the mill. And and I was just like all right, fine. So I bought it. And I had the material before I found the lathe, but essentially I found the lathe because I had the material. Yeah. And I was just like, all right, I got to make my own bottom brackets because this is going to make way better T47 bottom bracket shells. And I I still think that it does. Uh it's not to say that the regular ones don't work, mm-hmm. but I really like having the, the extra material just for the distortion purposes because, I mean, titanium just loves to distort. Yeah, and it does. Yeah, those and threads I- are fine, and they're much easier to deal with when you have just a little bit thicker material. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, that sort of story, I think, is you know, speaks volumes about how, um, you know, a lot of times, you know, for Mark, you know, maybe he's, he's making a business decision just based on what, what he can possibly, uh, 
you know, he makes a product and then he wants to just keep selling it the same way for a long time. So his customers know what to expect. And so it's the same thing. But, you know, if you're in search of real, if you're really trying to like make the best thing you can make, uh, you're maybe willing to put in a little bit more work than that or a lot more work. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, sometimes that's just the kind of thing you got to do. And so, uh, you know, there's different ways to do it and people can choose whatever's right for them. I admire that, you know, you don't, you don't settle on stuff so easily that like there are dropouts that are okay and they're fine. And, uh, you had ideas for what you thought would work better or what you wanted. And, you know, you go, you go after that. And I think that's cool because the end result is a bike that's unmistakably yours. Like nobody would ever <laughs> doubt that it was yours. Cause it's just obvious the dropouts and the head tube and everything, but also, um, you know, it's just, it's fit for the task at hand with, with lots of thoughtfulness. Yeah. And I mean, the, the dropouts, uh, I just had like a bunch of things that bothered me about regular bicycles. One, one of them is, is sort of a slightly moot point at this point. I mean, when it was a quick release bike and the derailleur hanger was part of the bearing surface for the wheel, I hated that. Mm-hmm. I, 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 that was something that really bothered me when the nut of the quick release was bearing on the same surface that the derailleur was attached to. Because no matter how well the bike was made and no matter how well the dropout was made, you could always see that derailleur move when you would tighten your quick release. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but you have a situation where your derailleur hanger is at a certain point half the thickness of the dropout. Yeah. So, like, I get it. It's supposed to be a quote-unquote breakaway hanger. I, I feel like that was sort of a term that was coined because they started breaking. And people <laughs> were like, oh, yeah, that's a feature. It's just like, how about it not being a feature? Like, how about it being really strong, but if you actually get into the unfortunate situation where your derailleur is wrapped up inside your cassette, you can still unthread this thing and install a new one. Mm-hmm. So I, I really wanted the derailleur hanger to be a separate entity of the bearing surface of the wheel. I'm pretty sure I'm the first person that did that. I've definitely seen people after I did it do it, mm-hmm. but I had never seen a derailleur hanger that bolted onto the dropout independent of where the wheel attaches to the bike. Mm-hmm. And that, that was like a big deal. I mean, I still do it with the through axle version, but that's, it's different. Like now when people integrate the threads for the skewer of the through axle and the derailleur hanger, that's still different because it's still like a meatier piece of material. Mm-hmm. because it isn't like half the thickness of the dropout typically. Yeah. And it's not one of these things that has like this, this blatant spot where it's going to break. But I, I mean, I stuck with what, what I had designed and I just it changed it to being a through axle design. And the other was the fact that I still use ISO on the, on the mountain bikes. Mm-hmm. I, I don't get direct mount. I, I totally get flat mount. Like, okay, I, I did that for the road bikes. But I don't get the direct mount for the mountain bike. You still have to use an adapter to change rotor sizes. Yeah. So if we're still going to use an adapter, it makes way more sense to me that we use the adapter that, in my opinion, is far superior, which is ISO to 140, 160, 180, or 200. Mm-hmm. You know, 
Let, let's just stick to these two bolts. And so, I, I mean, I made my dropouts have the exact same profile of a Shimano XTR ISO adapter. Mm-hmm. So if you look at like a, a disc side view of my mountain bike dropout, you'll see how well it integrates into a Shimano adapter. Mm-hmm. And like it is like literally just completely follows the path of, and that was my way of sort of, okay, well, you know, there's my direct mount. It's, directly flows with the lines of this adapter Mm -hmm. and i i just think that it's a better system where you have the two bolts that hold the adapter onto the frame and then you have the two bolts that hold your bolt your brake to the adapter because you're using short bolts to hold your brake to the adapter where direct mount by the time you're up to like a 200 millimeter rotor you have these like 40 millimeter long bolts Mm -hmm. that are going through this enormous independent spacer then into your direct mount and that didn't make sense to me like i was just like i don't like that design i want to use the shortest bolt possible because they're stronger yeah and so I, I like ISO. I stuck with it. I still haven't. I'll probably go right from that to flat mount once flat mount takes over on mountain bikes. Yeah, and that's coming. I think so. I mean, yeah. there's a few companies that are doing it. It's yeah. I think it'll be in the probably the, within the next five years. I see. Cool. Um, <clears throat> another one of the questions I had on the list was um, well, the way I had it written down was. You know, you bought a lot of machinery over the years. I mean, I guess we're kind of getting at this. Like, you know, you're going out of your way to make stuff just so... Yeah, I guess... Now that I read this question, it seems like we're kind of getting at that. I'm going to skip this one. Uh, (laughs) Here's the next one. (laughs) You go all in when it comes to the Philly Bike Expo. It's in your hometown and apart from Stephen Belinky, I think of you as sort of like the unofficial ambassador of the show. I said that when I was interviewing Bina last week. Um, cause I mean, you know, you host a couple people, uh, at your place and you're always just like, I feel like you're trying to make it go over well. Um, and so you and I are both going to have booths, but I was wondering, you know, what, why, you know, uh, you know, our listeners, why should they go? Oh, I mean, I think being, it does a, a spectacular job, you know, every year it gets better and every year there's, there's equal amounts of organization and, stuff to see you know she always has nice seminars and that's well run and the show itself is always well run but it's it's a it's just a a nice event she has a very nice venue the city that i live in i think is cool so there's more reasons to come than just to go to the expo yeah you know if you're within i I mean i'm gonna say six hours of driving it's worth your while because if you haven't been to Philadelphia in a while, maybe you should check it out again. And if you have been in a while, then why not come back and go see some stuff that you haven't seen yet? Like, I mean, even if we go to the extreme other end of the spectrum, like just today we were talking about the Barnes museum at at work. And it's, I, I think that that museum is like amazing. And that in itself, if someone drove up to five hours and, took one afternoon off and went over and saw the barns, like you'll be happy that you did it. And 
it will make your weekend that much better. But that, that's veering off the topic. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I like the fact – I probably spend more effort and more money having this thing be in my hometown than if I was driving to someplace else for a different convention. Mm-hmm. But I'm fine with that. Like, I love the fact that my, my good friends get to come and, and stay in my house, and I will forever host them. I don't care if they come on Wednesday and leave on Wednesday – it's all fine. We're going to have a ton of fun. And we don't tend to be like overly social people. I, I, I haven't been to like the industry parties in a few years, probably because, you know, I'm like a full-time dad yeah. and I'm not going to say to my son like, Oh, all right, later, you know, we're going out. Yeah. He, he thinks of the people that come to the house as his guests, as much as they're my guests. Mm-hmm. And you know he wants to be part of the people that are visiting, so he doesn't come to the show except for one day. But he totally expects everybody to be back, like <laughs> the second the show's over, and yeah. he wants to hang out with those people. And yeah. he he definitely knows Mark well. He knows his wife Donna well. He knows Gary well. He knows Rody well, and these are his friends and he wants them to hang out with him. So yeah, yeah, we we're kind of homebodies, but I think that that's part of why that collection of people enjoys themselves because it's less, it feels less like a trade show for them. Yeah. You know, they, they come and they get to have home cooked meals and they get to see people that they don't typically see every day. And, get to talk about stuff other than bicycles and yeah. even though we end up talking about bikes, but well, yeah, you can imagine someone like, uh, yeah, Mark, Mark Norstad from Paragon who you usually host, uh, having, he's gone to, uh, different, you know, bike industry trade shows since like what, like the late eighties or the early nineties, I think didn't, didn't, isn't the story that he started Sub Wamptos with, um, Oh yeah. I mean, Sub Wamptos started with him and, and Bruce coming back from, Euro bike one year. Like 91 or something, yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. I mean, they've, you know, Anaheim, lo- yeah. long, long amount so of shows. He's, sure. he's clearly, I mean, I don't think of trade, like, I think trade shows are fun for the people and a little bit, you know, it's kind of fun to talk about your stuff sometimes, but like, it's exhausting and, you know, you're away from home. And so, uh, yeah, the, you know, yeah, I can see why you do it the way you do it. Um, what else was I going to say about that? Uh, yeah, I think Bina does a great job with the show. I mean, that was kind of the point. Like, I wanted to have her on the show to talk about Philly Bike Expo, but also just to emphasize that it is a very good show, and I think everyone should come. And uh, one of my favorite things about going to the show has just been the people connections, you know, getting to know the the names and the faces of other people, and um, it's just a really good time, and the seminars are great. Yeah, she she does a phenomenal job, and... It you know if if anybody is is curious and interested, it, it I think that it's the premier show in the country I, at this point. I don't think anybody does a better job of presenting the cycling industry to the general public. And then on top of that, there's the the sub entity of it, which is the handmade aspect of it. Like the handmade industry on its own in a convention has run its course. Yeah. The 
cycling industry as a whole in a convention has not run its course. Hmm. So people want to see clothing. They want to see the new components. They want to see, you know, bikes that came out of a box. They want to see bikes that didn't come out of a box. They want to see as much as they can take in that has anything to do with bicycles. And, you know, that was sort of the premise behind what Stevie was doing. Like he went out to the Seattle bike expo and was just like, wow, this is cool. This is like all things bicycle. It's not only this, or it's not only that. And that, that was definitely like a driving force behind this event was yes. Like it's cool that we make bikes and they're nice and, you know, come look at them, but we don't want to alienate someone who has no interest in that because, Oh, right down there, there's bike that that company makes a $400 bike. So, you know, don't think that because you're in this room, you're not welcome because you're welcome right there. They make a $400 bike. And I I think that that's a huge, huge amount. I, the snobbery that's involved in a handmade show only is like totally unappealing. Yeah. Yeah. And that's coming from someone who makes very high end bikes, but you like, you're not interested in the snobbery of it. Like you, you're, you're in pursuit of making a nice product, but like, you know, it doesn't. Yeah. Well, I'd also like to know how many people other than myself that essentially make a $10,000 product that I'm pretty sure yesterday I fixed a flat on a 10-inch wheeled Strider, and, you know, today I probably fixed four flats on completely crappy bikes. Yeah. And it's just like, that. that's fine. That's, you know, and none of the people that I did that for had any idea what I do other than fix their flat. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm fine with that. You know, I'm not trying to have them think otherwise or, or think whatever. I, I just like the snobbery of it needs to be removed. And, yeah. you know, I think that Bina did a good job of that. Yeah, no, I think it all, across the board, it's a great show and I recommend anyone go to it. Um, and I look forward to talking to people, uh, cause I have a booth and I should have ordered sooner, should have registered sooner. I knew that, but man, it filled up fast this year. Um, I, I wanted to talk some about uh, the hashtag. It's all about the process. Uh, I'm curious. It's all about the process. No, no, it's. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. All about the process. Hashtag. All about the process. Gotcha. Okay, I had it wrong. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I'm curious about the origin of that because I don't think I've ever heard the origin story. And then you know, it's not just a tag that you throw on stuff where you're documenting your process. It's it's a you know, it's an idea that you think is relevant to what you do. Uh, what's the, what's the origin and how is it relevant? Uh, well, it's sort of, a, uh, it's a good story, but it gets a little sad only because Bruce Gordon's involved in it. Um, we were, so we were down in, uh, North Carolina for a, a function that was called like, uh, it doesn't really exist anymore. I think it was like, like the, you know, carrying on the torch or keeping the flame. I, I don't know. It, it was like an event that was relevant art exhibit that was relevant to people who make bicycles quote unquote, the traditional way still. Okay. So it was this guy, Chip, who 
has like an insane bike collection and he had this like cool idea. He's like, Oh, I'm going to curate this art show and I'm going to have all these, these five builders come down and these builders are going to present some product and I'm going to have like an invitation of people that are going to come and we're going to talk all about these bikes. So we had this, uh, this weekend where we're down there. It was in high point, uh, North Carolina, which is sort of like the furniture capital of the East coast. There's nothing there except for we were there. Uh And so Bruce Gordon was there. Curtis Inglis was there. Chris Bishop was there. Uh, Mitch Pryor and myself. Mm -hmm. And, so we're and a, and a bunch of nerds that like bicycles because they were there to see it. Uh, the whole weekend, Bruce was like on point. I mean, he was being as Bruce Gordon as Bruce Gordon can be. Mm-hmm. And w- w- Curtis and I were talking to him this one point. I, I feel like we were sitting, the three of us were sitting together for like probably like two hours talking. And we would have like a, a random thing that we were talking about. And then eventually I would be like, I would say, well, it's, it's, it's about the process. And he would be like, there you are again with that process. And we would chuckle a little bit and, you know, and then the conversation would go on and then we would change the topic and I would say it again. And he, he kept like making a point of every time I would say it's about the process or he would sort of like be in the middle of a sentence and he knew that what he was about to say was that it was about the process. So he would kind of look at me and be like, Oh, there it is. It's about the process. And so it it became sort of like the joke of the weekend. And then he went home and he he has famously always made buttons. He bought this button machine like back in the Mm seventies and just made buttons like for, you know, Bruce Gordon was nice to me. Bruce Gordon was mean to me. Should have been a plumber, whatever. <laughs> and he sent me like 200 buttons that just said it all about the process, engine cycles. Like you put the name on the top. Mm-hmm. And, and so I got these buttons just randomly that said that. And this was, I, I feel like it was before like the use of the hashtag existed, mm-hmm. but Soon thereafter, it did exist, and I was just out of a joke, you know, I tagged both Bruce Gordon and All About the Process in the beginning because he sent me the buttons, and I thought it was funny. And then it, then it just kind of stuck where I was just like, well, it kind of is. Like, I know that he made fun of me for it, but I really meant it. Like, it, my bicycles are more about the process than they are about the end product, like, so much of what I put into the bicycle is lost once you get a look at the end product. Mm-hmm. You know, the amount of detail work that I put into everything that led up to the final product is a huge part of what someone's buying. So I felt like people were buying as much of the process as they were the bicycle that they're getting in the end. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of, I stuck with it, but the the whole thing comes from that weekend with Bruce Gordon and Curtis Inglis. Yeah. Yeah, and you can see that well, I mean, that's a great story that I never knew actually and I'm it's cool to hear cuz I have I have one of those pins actually. I think you gave me at Philly Bike Expo 2016 or something. And so 
I don't know if that's the, one of the original ones or if you ever had more of those. Yeah, made. yeah. You only no, you only made one batch. Oh, okay, yeah. So I mean, that makes it a lot more special. I hope I still have that. I have it around somewhere. <laughs> uh, knowing the story now, I kind of really hope I have that. I hold on to that. Um, but anyway, uh, but you know, so I, I feel like that's cool to know the story. But also, you know, you can see that with. You know, for, for a long time, I, I took a frame building class in 2010 with Doug Faddock, and it was very old school brazing and torch work and lugs and a little bit of fillet brazing stuff. You could have done the class with the lights off or with the power out, is what I always said. If the power shut down, you'd still be able to make bikes pretty much the same way in the daylight hours. And so, anyway, uh, after that, I had to learn everything else that I wanted to know about frame building. I didn't feel like taking another class, or I certainly didn't anyway. And so uh, I would learn through, a lot of it was through Flickr and through, you know, like the, the Google groups or it used to be some, whatever it's called, like a list serve or something. And I, you would post stuff there and you had stuff on your Flickr and then later it was Instagram. And so you were one of the people whose work that I would study. And thankfully for me, you would post a lot of stuff about how you were doing what you were doing. That was really helpful for me to figure out you know, what a machine-oriented process or what a TIG welding process or that sort of thing might look like, how you might actually, you know, align bikes or fixture things or whatever. And, um, but anyway, I feel like because of having studied your stuff a lot, I can tell that, like, the way that you do things, it is very process-heavy because, you know, the process uh, is is the way by which everything else is made. And if the process is crap, it's going to be, maybe it's possible to make something good in the end, but it's going to be hard uh, and really, I mean, if you're going to make something good, you want to have a good process. And I can see that you think about that a lot. Yeah. I just refuse to have complacency be part of my life. Mm-hmm. Like that, that is the root of all of it. You know, I, I refuse to accept that anything that I'm doing is the end all be all there. There's always room for improvement and, I mean, it's definitely at my detriment, you know, I mean, I, I, I can't tell you how many times I've been in a position where I, I had enough orders to make enough bikes to make like a decent wage for the year. Mm-hmm. And I'll send an email out saying, yeah, I'm not going to make bikes for a while because I got this new part that I'm working on and <laughs> it's going to be way better. And everybody needs to wait for it because if you take your bike now, it's going to suck compared to what it's going to be in six months. Mm-hmm. So trust me, you want to wait. Yeah. And I, yeah. I mean, they did. And I, hopefully they feel like they were all better for it. Yeah. And I think by now, I mean, I don't know what drives the purchasing decisions of your customers, but uh, for me, I can imagine, you know, you have, you post about that process stuff a lot and you have for a long time and it's it, it's I think it's a big thing that distinguishes you from other builders uh, is the links that you go to for that stuff so I would imagine a lot of your customers are thinking about that when they buy stuff from you that it's not it's not just a titanium bicycle from somebody in Philadelphia or somebody out east or whatever I imagine your customers are thinking about you know the way that you do things as being particularly remarkable uh, that you take it further than than most people are willing to take it, and like that 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 remarkable thing speaks to them. Yeah, I mean, I have a skill set that n- not too many people have. Um, I mean, at this point, really, my my only true holdup is my computer ability. Mm-hmm. But you know, I mean, I'm pretty efficient at 
pro- programming a machine. I'm, I'm pretty efficient at running a machine. I'm pretty efficient at coming up with fixtures to make the parts in the machine. And then I'm like very efficient at making a bicycle. Um, like to think that I'm a pretty good welder. Um, I'm definitely not going to put myself in the camp of Brad Bingham, but (laughs) that I think that that's okay. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm really good at what I do. It's because I'm like incredibly well-rounded. You know, I, I, again, I have a pretty big skill set and I would like to think that that's what people are buying is the fact that I incredibly intimately know the bicycle top Mm -hmm. to bottom Mm -hmm. and also know pretty intimately how the bike is made more intimately than a lot of people that make bikes. Yeah. Like, you know, there's a lot of people that are making bikes that I could unleash in my shop and wouldn't be able to come out with a bike. Yeah. You know, be like, no, 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 no. You, here's the material. You need to make the dropouts. Here's the material. You need to make the head tube. Uh-huh. Here's the material. You need to make the seat collar. Like, you know, no, the, here's the material. I need, you know, I'll come back in a week. I want to see a bike. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's a skill set that I think is unique. And I would like to think that that's what people are, are buying. Yeah, I mean, when I, uh, this mountain bike that I've been building the last six months now or something for just, you know, basically to make YouTube videos about, I mean, I want the bike, but uh, the reason that I'm spending the time on it is to make YouTube videos. And for that one, uh, I thought about making a head tube from scratch. And then I was like, well, you know, it would be better in the end, but like, it's just way more work and I don't have any good boring bars and I don't want to buy like a carbide boring bar or something. And so I just, I just bought one from Paragon. Right. And then I, I needed to at least cosmetically dress the outside of it. So I made some like turning, you know, some work holding stuff so I could just on my manual lathe, I could like change the profile of it a little bit. And part of that is just because like you look at, you know, you go to a trade show like NABS or, or Philly or anything, or you look at pictures of bikes and, uh, you know, I'm not, not saying anything about the quality of the bikes or the quality of, like, the customer service of these people, but, like, so many custom bikes have just sort of, like, the Paragon head tube and the Paragon dropouts and, like, you know, that this, you know, th- these, like, same sorts of things. And that's fine, but, like, I, I appreciate, I-, I guess maybe I'm, like, <laughs> inspired by what you and some other people do, which is to, like, actually make stuff from the, from the ground up. You know, that's what I would be like to be doing if I was making, you know, bike frames for the public. Yeah, and I mean, the stuff that I make, is I don't make anything that, uh, I'm not making it to be stubborn, you know, it's like, no, there's a reason, you know, this is, this is different than what's available, because this is what I think is better. Yeah. So, you know, my bottom bracket is different, and in my opinion, is better. My, my dropouts are different, and deal with certain little ins and outs that I disliked about every other bicycle that's on the market and you know like my seat collar mark does it now but i mean when i originally went went out and made my seat collars i wanted to internally relieve for the seam weld and mm-hmm. i mean that was something that i was like oh my god i'm so sick and tired of reaming through this sucked in thing that, that's <laughs> on the bottom of this collar uh-huh. and 
So, you know, I internally relieved to get rid of that. And again, that that's now on the menu for Mark. Same thing with like, I wanted to put a water bottle cage on my seat tube. Mm-hmm. So I noticed that you use part. That is compliments of my doing because yeah. it drove me crazy that you couldn't put a water bottle cage on a bicycle that had a dropper post that went all the way down inside the drop inside yeah. the C tube. And so I was sitting on Mark's porch and we were doing all these little sketches and, and then that little sketch got kind of like thrown to the side. And then I got my own CNC lathe and I was just like, well, I'm making these things. And <laughs> so I made them. And then right after I made them and I proceeded to put one on his bike <laughs> he was just like okay now here's that part that we talked about you know like a year and a half ago uh-huh. I'm like yeah all right <laughs> yeah and but it makes a ton of sense like i want it to be an external i mean I, and i didn't you know like i think uh parley's been doing it that way for a while kelsey was doing it on the carbon it was actually kind of a, a common thing on carbon like all the way back to the elan carbon bikes had external threads that use a nut to then hold up, but it just made more sense to, to bring it back. Mm-hmm. And so I make them and I, ma- I even make my weld in style water bottle bosses because like aesthetically there was something about the ones that were available that, that didn't appeal to me. And I wanted to make them with a, I like the ones that have a flat top, mm-hmm. like no roundedness to it. I want it to just be a flat top. Yeah. And so I made them and yeah, I mean, I just I don't make something exactly the same as it exists. Mm-hmm. I I do make something that has more to it that, and and a lot of the stuff that I make is not sustainable for high production. You know, I mean, I probably well, I knowingly don't charge enough for my bikes because mm-hmm. if you. Ask the time that I put into making all of these parts, it's bonkers. But, you know, I'd rather have the bikes be as good as they are than not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I I think about, I see some of the stuff, the parts, the dropouts and things that you make, and I think, man, that's a, that's a lot of work to, you know, to put into that. Like, you know, you would never sell that stuff to the public because it's too much work for, you know, you you would have to charge a lot of money for it. And so, like, it's kind of cool. Like the only way to get that is to buy an engine. Yeah. I mean the yokes, Oh my goodness. There's, there's like an insane amount of machine time in each one of those yokes. Yeah. There's, I mean, each half, <laughs> how many each half is it's something I'm well, uh, the, the road yokes I make, uh, both halves at the same time. So that was a little bit more efficient, but that one, that one is like, three hours and 24 minutes of actual spindle run time yeah yeah that's wild because the the parts that i make that have the longest the longest cycle time for anything i make on a regular basis is like 25 minutes maybe uh and those are no no. yeah (laughs) there's just really simple you know the tool pads are pretty simple and it's it's just like a bunch of roughing and then like a little bit of finish and it's done so yeah, you do some 3D profiling of titanium, and then, uh-huh. then you're going to see some, some serious run times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, big time. Um, 
I mean, that's getting close to exhausting the list of the questions that I had ahead of time. Oh, here's another one. Um, I feel like I heard you talk once about engine cycles versus, like, Goldalian cycles or something. That, like, something about the history of why you named it engine cycles and then later... Uh, Something about like you, you, you. In the beginning, you thought you know you didn't want it to be Goldalian cycles if you ever had like employees working with you, and then you quickly realized that you you wouldn't want that anyway, or something. Oh God, no! I would never have put my last name on the down tube of a bicycle. Okay, I don't <laughs> that definitely now. never, never, ever, ever was going to be. No one would want that. I okay. mean, it, I'm maybe I'm yeah, confusing. I, I've it. gone my entire life people not being able to pronounce my name, my name. So it's just like, yeah, that was not going to happen. But the the story behind the name was that uh, I, I was I was actually watching an NCAA basketball tournament, and one of the players, his name was Engin, but it's spelled E N G I N. He was actually a, a Turkish player, which is sort of ironic since I'm Armenian. And the the name just I was like, oh my god, what a cool name! Like that, that is the coolest name ever. And I said to Andrea, I was just like, oh, I saw this this basketball player today had the coolest name ever i was like his name was engine and and she was just like what are you talking about and i'm like that's a cool name like that would be really cool and she's just like totally dismissed me like whatever (laughs) and i i was like i think it's a cool name damn it and so we named our son jack and i still think it would be cool if his name was engine jack but that's besides the point and (laughs) I said, well, I want to use this name because I think it's cool. And then I did a little research into that, in fact, spelling of the name and realized that it's in, it is the French spelling. And then when you, like, re- it is the French spelling of, of a true, like, engine engine, like combustible engine. Yeah. And then when you read the definition of it, you're just like, oh, man, it's like that totally pertains to bicycles and so i was like well what the hell you know you went your whole life with a a last name that nobody could pronounce you open a business with a name that nobody can spell and (laughs) with the hicken you know i mean so i'm like why not let's just keep it going let's let's confuse everybody some more and and so i went with it and there there were a few other names that were kind of like on the board but Deep down, I kind of—I really wanted to use that name because I thought it was cool. Yeah, I think it's a real cool name, and I like the uh, the branding stuff you've done or logo work or whatever the last couple of years with the the Keystone. The uh, I didn't realize that at first, but uh, that's like the the state logo or whatever is a Keystone, right? Yeah, yeah, the Pennsylvania is the Keystone state. So that that actually came about from more of a standpoint of the CNC machine than anything else. Yeah. So my buddy, Joe Reynolds, he designed the original head badge, which is awesome. And he did a killer job. And I get like still hate mail for the fact that I bailed on that head badge, mm-hmm. but it was, you know, it was a sterling silver head badge that I had cast and Jen green who does like, you know, pretty much all the stainless steel head badges that's out there. She always made them for me. And I, I am not cheap, but I couldn't bring myself to paying for those things anymore, knowing that I could have engraved it with my CNC machine on the mill. Mm-hmm. So 
I sort of set out to take the artwork and convert it over to being a file that I could engrave on the mill. Mm-hmm. And that was when I realized that, like, this is not going to happen. This was a hand-drawn piece of artwork that then got, like, you know, hand-cast. And there was, there was like, too much to it that was going to get lost yeah. if it became, uh, like, a CNC toolpath. Mm-hmm. So I set out to rebrand, if you must, like, you know, remark the, the product with a head badge that would be doable on the CNC machine. Yeah. And that was where, so then I, I hired uh, Mike Faltzgraf, who who's out in, in Pittsburgh. He does a lot of work with right now with like Marin bicycles and he, he did allied and he used to work for Trek and he worked for specialized and mm-hmm. uh, a few other companies. And he helped me with the Keystone logo and you know, we kind of went back and forth. And if you look inside the logo, there's like a, a small circle and a big circle. And, and that represents the drivetrain. Mm-hmm. So nowadays, of course, the big circle is your cassette and the little circle is your chain ring. But it, <laughs> it, used, to be, it used to be the opposite. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's funny. But it, it, it just switched. And then we kept the E that was... So he did not touch at all the E. The E stayed exactly the same. The only thing that he changed was like the integration of, of it into a new mark. So it was like less intense of a branding than a complete rebrand. Mm-hmm. Um, and the down tube logo has remained the same from the very beginning, which was also done by Joe. Mm-hmm. So he, he made that font and yeah, it's uh, I've I've used the same font the entire time. Never changed it. Yeah, having simple, especially if it's straight lines and arcs for logos and stuff that are very like clean and tidy. It makes it a lot easier to render. Whether it's a CNC toolpath for engraving or whether it's you know on a T-shirt or whatever. And I have a, like a Cobra logo that I had made a couple years ago. And uh, it's like hand drawn, and I think it looks really cool. And I, I sent like a you know a, a art file to somebody who actually specialized in making belt buckles. And so they did like uh, acid etch where they would like print on you know like a photo resist, and then they would acid etch some nickel. And so they made me like six head badges, which at the rate that I made bicycles was going to last eternity. But uh, but anyway, I thought they looked really cool. But then it's like, even if I could create some sort of, you know, CNC toolpath that would do it, it's just like, it just, it wouldn't work. It's like, it, and so it's, it's worth considering when you're designing a logo, you know, not just what it looks like on a sheet of paper or something, but like all the different places that you might put it. Uh, you know, like I know Chris Bishop has a really beautiful Bishop, which is clever. And he puts that little tiny versions of that all over his bike. Like that's really smart to be able to integrate some part piece of your logo into different places like that. And, uh, something I didn't consider when I was having this, this, uh, Cobra logo made. And so I, it was one of the things I, I noticed about your, uh, the Keystone logos. It's real simple and it works really well for, uh, for the CNC tool path. Yeah. Yeah. And like that was a hundred percent the methodology behind it was something that could be done on the cnc machine yeah and like look reasonable like maybe you could get it to scribble something else on there but it would just be lost and it's the wrong medium for that yeah um 
I was going to ask you, uh, what advice do you have for aspiring frame builders? <laughs> I mean, I always get a kick out of that question because it's just like, I don't think that most aspiring frame builders are, are prepared for how difficult it is. Yeah. That, that's like, and I hate to be like the curmudgeon old guy, you know, but it's just like the whole self-entitlement millennial it, it's hard. Yeah. Like this is hard. There, there's, there's nothing easy about it. And you know, the one thing that has always struck me as amazing with you is, and please don't take offense to this mm -hmm. is how cheap you are. And yet you have <laughs> so successfully figured this out because there's nothing cheap about figuring this out. Like nothing. if, if buy a surly, it's way cheaper mm -hmm. and it's better than whatever you would come up with. And, you know, it, it's, it's an expensive endeavor, and if you're going to do it right and you're going to do a good job of it, you're going to bleed money. And, you know, that's, you need to be prepared to bleed money because yeah. otherwise it's, it's just going to take either forever or it's just never going to be as good. As, you know, you can't have compromises. You can't, like be in front of a situation and be like, I'm not going to do that. Cause I don't want to spend that $40. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just like, what? Like I, you can't, that's not an option. Like yeah. it doesn't matter that this costs $40. It doesn't matter that it costs $200. Like this, this is what needs to be done. You need yeah. to do it. Yeah. I, I have been incredibly cheap. You know, when I took what, when I first got into cycling as an adult, I was 19, I was in college, and I didn't have any real way to make any money or anything, you know, I didn't have a real job or anything, and so I was, and I was always kind of a cheapskate. My dad was always real practical, he was a farmer, he was the guy who would like walk around the house and turn off lights, not because he couldn't afford to pay the electrical bill, but just because it was, he was too practical to like waste anything, you know, and so like that's, I was just always been real cheap about stuff. And, um, and then, you know, through my 20s, as I'm like starting to build up a frame building shop and try and figure stuff out, I never wanted to give anybody a full 40 hours of my time. I didn't have kids or anybody that I was responsible to. So I'd live in a cheap apartment with some friends and I would like rent the smallest, tiniest, cheap shop that I could. And I would spend like zero money on anything that I had to. And that was one way of doing things. And, uh, you know, I was learning stuff all the time because I was like dinking around in my shop. But like, it's really hard to cover any ground when you're that cheap because you don't have any of the tools. So then you're trying to make the tools, but you don't have any machines. So then you're like looking for deals on machines. And it just like, I've, I've been pretty serious into frame building since the time that I was, you know, 22 and I graduated college and I took a class two years before that. And yet, like, I've only made like 18 bicycles, you know? So like you can be a cheapskate about it and that's one way of doing things, but <laughs> it is, it is a difficult and a slow way. And there are a lot of compromises you have to make to even make that work. And so I can appreciate that. Like, it's not necessarily good advice to be a cheapskate. Like I certainly have been. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it, you need to say like, all right, I'm going to bleed money until I feel like I've done something correctly three times. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you know, like, okay, now I'm going to slow down. I did that right three times. And I, I think I got that. And, you know, but it's just like, you're like, just assume that the first, I don't know, five bikes you're going to make, you just need to cut them up and throw them in the garbage. Yeah. Like, 
which that, is really when I read pretty... about people like, oh, go dumpster dive and like pull the tubes out. And like, <laughs> I'm like, what? Those bikes have lead paint on them. Like, are you serious? Yeah. Like tubing is like two dollars a yeah. foot. I mean, what what are we saving here? Come on. Yeah, no, that's, there there are that's some totally insane. And yeah, I there mean, are some just, incredible just go ex- spend a bunch of money and you'll learn. Yeah, I think there's some really big big ticket items that are so expensive and it's funny to me then, yeah, when people are talking about um yeah, like cutting up old old bike frames out of the trash to practice brazing on because like, I mean, if if you want to if you want to do that to like, you know, be you know, have less of an environmental impact or something. Like, I guess I get the logic there. But to save money, it's like everything else vastly outweighs the cost of the tubing. The tubing is like maybe a couple dollars a foot for like good cremali or something. It's just not a big deal. Uh, that's like the least of your worries. You know, if you want to if you want to have insurance and go to trade shows or take a class or buy a welding rig or like space, you know, you need a space to do it in. That's that's oftentimes a really expensive part for people like the tubing. It's like that's just peanuts. Yeah. So you can't worry about yeah. tubing. I, I mean, same thing with the, you know, like I, and I'm not I'm going to try and say this and not not sound like I'm, I'm throwing a jab out there. But when people people are like, oh, I'm going to do Philip Ray's bikes, you know, because steel is real. It's like, oh, come on. You're going to do Philip Ray's bikes because they're cheap, and you don't want to buy a welder because welder's like $3,000, and you can buy an oxycetylene setup for like $200. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's like, no, buy the welder, because if you're going to be a metal fabricator, you need to learn how to weld. Yeah. Because that's what you do. You don't, you don't limit yourself. You, you have to decide. You can't decide that you're not going to make welded bikes without owning a welder and trying it and seeing if you can do it. Mm-hmm. You, sh- you shouldn't say, well, I don't make welded bikes because I make fillet brace bikes. Well, have you tried making welded bikes? Yeah. You know, I mean, and that's where I, I will always, Eric Estlin uh, at Winter Bicycles, like he owns a welder, mm-hmm. but he doesn't want to use it. He, he makes fillet brace bikes because he's more efficient at it. And that, you know, this is what he does. Yeah. But he owns a welder, and that he came to the conclusion after owning his welder that he still wanted to make fillet brace bikes. Yeah, and you know that's that's cool, but you got you have to own one. You have to. Yeah. It's part of the program. Like you have to get a welder. Yeah, I could never appreciate TIG welding until I did it. it uh, from the outside looking in, when I would see people do lug work and like fillets and bilaminate stuff, I was like, ooh, that's gorgeous. Oh, the craftsmanship. And it spoke to me. And I would see TIG welds and I was like, yeah, whatever, who cares? And then uh, I had a, so I took a frame building class. And then like over the next year or two, I was still in college. I didn't have my own workspace, but there was a, there was a metal sculpture professor in my university who rode mountain bikes, Ryan Flesher. He taught me to TIG weld. That was like one of the stipulations of me having an independent study with him. He was like, yeah, you can practice your torch work or whatever, but like you're going to learn to TIG weld. And he taught me. And after I did it a little bit and I was really frustrated at first, but then I kind of started to get it and I was like, oh, this is fun. And I'm like, this is cool, actually. Like, I kind of like it. And then, you know, of course, there's like a whole world of TIG welding. You know, you you look at the welds of someone like Brad Bingham, of course, you know, and you just in awe that someone can do that good of work but but for some reason i don't know it just it never spoke to me until i tried it myself and um yeah it's you got to try it yeah i mean for me i just want to make titanium bicycles so it's the only thing on the table but it's just i i 
it's such an amazing way to fabricate and it's, it's almost limitless, you know, and, and that for me, that, that is all that matters is that you don't limit yourself from ever making the best thing that you can make. And, yeah. you know, that's, so I needed the weld stuff. Yeah. And you have two, you have like a synchro wave and you have a dynasty, right? Yeah. I mean, to be honest, the only reason I have two welders is because one of them broke and I, I personally felt like it was still under warranty, but it was questionable. So it went back to Miller and after, I don't know, I think it was like three weeks and it was still there and they, they hadn't like said anything about what was going on. The writing was on the wall where I was like, all right, I, I mean, okay, got to buy another welder. And because of my inverter is the one that broke, I was just like, well, I'm not buying another inverter. I'm buying one of those big heavy things because, <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter to me what it's just going to sit there. So I bought the Synchrowave and I was using that and it took Miller uh, close to two years before they got back to me and said they, they decided that it was in fact going to be a warranty and they were going to refurbish my welder. Wow. And I got the inverter back and it's been, it's been flawless since, but you know, I mean, obviously I wasn't going to sit around for two years and say, well, yep. I don't have my welder back yet. Mm-hmm. So, and so do you, you usually know. use the, uh, the dynasty, the inverter machine? I actually, yeah, I use the inverter for titanium, and I use the synchrowave for steel. Mm-hmm. Is there any reason for that, or you just like keep the pulse settings in different places, or something? Yeah, I just don't want to monkey with my settings. <laughs> so, well, that's luxury the, right there. That's nice. You got, you got. The- yeah, uh, at first when I got it back, I was like, oh, I need to sell this. Like, you know, I have no need for it. And I was like, whatever. It's like bought and paid for long ago. And and what am I gonna you know I sell it for like a couple thousand dollars and then I'll just spend that couple thousand dollars on something that I don't really need. Yeah. And I was like, no, I'm gonna keep it. And so I just kind of kept it. And now I'm glad because I mean, like I said, I I have my my settings for the titanium are dialed, and I, for the steel it's kind of all over the map depending on what I'm doing. If it's if it's bicycle stuff it's one thing if i'm i'm just like you know dumpster welding you just crank it up and turn the pulser off and you know use the stick welder all that kind of stuff yeah uh i thought of another question or two i could ask you if you got time yeah i got like i got like 10 more minutes and then i already got a bunch of texts from my wife saying where are you but that's <laughs> okay. okay one more uh if i can think of it now maybe i forgot it already um Oh yeah, forks. I just wanted to ask you, you know, that's the one thing that you make in steel anymore. And I know you had uh, Stephen Belinke, uh, right? Didn't he make you some like custom profile Unicron forks? I was just curious to hear some more about that. Yeah, well, they have the they have the Swager that was uh, formerly of of Sirota Cycles, and it is kind of ironic that he owns it because I really wanted to buy it, and he. Uh, he got he got that one out from under me, but after hearing <laughs> it run, I'm I'm kind of glad that he got it. And I didn't. I've get heard it. from so, several people that it is like a it is very violent. Oh, it's awful! And yeah, I'm so glad it's not in my shop. <laughs> and so yeah, we went. I went over there and we swaged some some one inch tubing down to uh, 16 millimeters at the tip, so that I could bend them on the diacro uh, around a. Uh, two and a half inch center line radius, so a very tight bend. Yeah, and m- mostly it was just because I could not find any Unicron fork blades that 
were long enough that had a tight enough radius to give, you know, like what I was trying to produce was a two inch tire clearance, but still had the axle, the crown length of, of like a all road bike. Yeah. So, you know, a really tight radius, but, but still could achieve the two inch tire clearance. And I had some, some Unicrown blades that were tight enough in the bend, but they weren't long enough to reach the hooded dropouts that we're doing for the 12 millimeter through axle. Mm-hmm. And so I was just like, all right, well, you know, let's make them. And it was fun because I got to go over to Blinky and use the swager. But That's awesome. Yeah. I, titanium forks don't, um, it's not that they don't appeal to me. It's that I, I don't feel like it's the, the correct material of choice. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if if a fork was going to be made out of out of titanium, it aesthetically, in my opinion, would n- would not appeal to anybody. It would <laughs> need to be enormous. Yeah. You know, the legs would need to be like an inch and three eighths in diameter, and you know, it would just be like this enormous thing. Mm-hmm. And even then, I think it would still have too much bounce to it, too much undamped bounce on top of that, because. Mm-hmm. You have to bear in mind that a, that a titanium frame is always triangulated. You know, there's, there's no thing that's just kind of out there swinging in the wind. Mm-hmm. But the fork, no matter how robust you make it, is literally just like, it's just swinging in the wind. It's just that wheel is out there and nothing, unless you're doing like the, you know, the classic style where you have like the little three ace tubes coming up and connecting at the fork. It, you're not you're not stopping it from being super duper bouncy, mm-hmm. and you know the the point of your front wheel is to feel secure, and yeah. I just don't feel like a titanium fork is going to give you that sensation. And I and I bought like some of the the Spicer forks and and Marathi tie forks back in the day, and yeah, they were light, but they always had that weird awkward bounce to them, and Steel doesn't do that. Steel is definitely the, the correct and the better material for making something that's just cantilevered out there like that. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, I think carbon is the ultimate material for it. So it, if more and more carbon forks can come into existence that, that open up the opportunity to have multiple rakes and tire clearances, and now at least a lot of the carbon forks have fender mounts and, and, rack mounts maybe not as much the rack mounts as the fender mounts mm-hmm. but you know it, it it's incredibly light incredibly light and the steel fork is is rarely used it's mostly used in the situation where there just isn't anything else that's going to work yeah you know you don't you don't want to compromise the bike just to use a carbon fork yeah Cool. But most mountain bikes anymore, just, you know, they're all suspension. Yeah. I couldn't imagine having a mountain bike without a suspension fork. That <laughs> doesn't even make sense to me. That's a road bike. You yeah. know, it's like at this point when someone comes to me and they're like, oh, I want a rigid single speed. And I'm just like, why, why? 
Why do you want that? <laughs> yeah. Why do you want a bike that doesn't have suspension, doesn't have this amazing 12 gears and a dropper post? Like, yeah. That's a mountain bike. <laughs> it's like suspension is awesome. You can put 130 millimeters of travel in front of your bike that works amazing. You have 12 gears that work amazing. And you have this seat post that, that drops 150 millimeters or even 170 millimeters. These three things added up make bikes super fun to ride. Yeah. And, you know, the thought of going back out there like I did 15 years ago and riding one gear on a rigid fork <laughs> with no, you know, like that, no, that doesn't appeal to me. Yeah. Yeah, and it's not because it doesn't appeal to me, it needs to not appeal to the person who's going to buy my bike because yeah. like this is this is what's awesome right now and it's way better than anything that's been made in the last 20 years. Yeah. Yeah, I actually have a full rigid like a it's a Kona unit. It's a single speed yeah, full rigid. Yeah, yeah. And it's like it's the only mountain bike I ever bought new. And it's been fun, you know, to getting in the woods and riding your bike through the woods is fun, but like, it just does not inspire any sort of confidence. And, uh, I cannot wait to get my, the, the bike that I've been building finished because it is very much what you're describing, you know, long, long travel fork and a big dropper post and wide range of gears. And it's going to be a, a revelation, I'm sure. Not to mention just like, you know, bigger tires that, uh, you know, are going to have yeah, 2.6 inch tires and descends like the wind. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. Well, I really appreciate you making the time to be on the call, and uh, and I think we should wrap it up here. Um, yeah, I can't wait to see you in Philly. Everyone who's listening needs to make it out to the Philly Bike Expo. And, uh, yeah, thanks so much, Drew. Yeah, no problem. Being it for president. Being it for president. <laughs> yeah, bye, Drew. All right. I'll see you. Later.